Acts 1 and 8. It says, But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. This is our final lesson in our series on being a true witness. The purpose of these lessons has been that we would add to hopefully add to our understanding of the gifts and callings that Jesus places in his church so that we might desire to be what he wants us to be, that we might fulfill his will and his purpose in our lives and in the life of his body or the church. We have established so far that we are not created just to receive from God, but we are to be contributors. We are to give into the body of Christ. Our testimony or our witness begins with the transformation that takes place when we are born again of water and spirit and then extends to growth in the fruit of the spirit in our lives and the gifts of God operating in our lives. The primary purpose of receiving the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit is the new life that it brings, the resurrection power that lives in us. But as we said in an earlier lesson, nobody is given the Spirit only in a saving capacity or only for your salvation. But the Spirit of God is also given that we might find our place in His body. That as Ephesians 4.16 says, From whom, speaking of Jesus, the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. That's what our purpose is. The New Living Translation reads that verse like this. It says, He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Each passage that we have looked at in this series regarding the gifts that God has given us have contained a strong emphasis on several things. Firstly, being a part of a body. We are not individuals in the sense of how God operates. We are individuals in that He saves us individually. He deals with us individually. He changes us individually, but we are to be a part of a body. We are to recognize that we serve by the grace of God. And we serve with the measure of faith that God gives us. We are to honor one another with humility. Jesus is always to be glorified and not man. In our first group of gifts, which are sometimes called the service or the motivational gifts, these are found in Romans chapter 12. They are prophecy, ministry or serving, teaching, exhortation or encouragement, giving, ruling or leading, and showing mercy. Now, these gifts, to a certain level, or at least in part, can be found as a part of how God has designed each of us. They are sometimes a part of our personality. So at least at some point, some of them, not always, but some of them can be naturally naturally occurring abilities. Even so, they come from God, the way He made us. Sometimes if you've ever been around groups of small children, if you've taken your kids to school and and watched kids as a class, you can observe some of these qualities begin to be revealed even at a very young age. You can see 
kids that have leadership qualities, others that are very caring, kids that, that you see different things that, that people, kids that will share, they want to give to somebody else. There are traits that are, are resident in some of our personalities. However, for these things to be of value in the kingdom of God, whether they are naturally occurring or not, they must find their place and application in the kingdom by His grace and at His direction. It's important we understand that. The second group of gifts, which is sometimes called the supernatural spiritual gifts, are located in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. They are the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, faith, gifts of healings, working of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, different kinds of tongues, and interpretation of tongues. We covered these over a couple of lessons. These gifts do not reside in us naturally. You're not born with a gift of prophecy. There may be that the Lord has positioned you for that in the future. But these are gifts that are given after we have received the gift of the Holy Ghost. They are gifts of the Spirit. When we are born again of water and spirit, Romans 8 tells us that we are adopted by the Spirit of God, that we are placed in His church, in His body, in His family. And when He fills us with that Spirit and places us in that family, that Spirit has gifts that are given to us from the Lord for the benefit of the body of Christ and that the Lord might be glorified. It's important that we understand that these supernatural gifts operate in harmony with the Word of God. They confirm the Word of God. They never replace or contradict the Word of God. If that happens, they're not the gifts of the Spirit. They're from somewhere else. Amen. And the final group of gifts that we touched on in our last lesson are the ministerial office gifts, which we find in Ephesians chapter 4. They are sometimes called the fivefold ministry gifts. They are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These gifts, I'll say almost always, I lead toward, lean towards it just being always, but these gifts almost always include a calling from God, however that is revealed and are given to the church that it might be strengthened, it might be equipped, and it might be the healthy body of Christ. These gifts have a primary purpose of the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God and of the leading of the church of God. Amen. So that's what we've gone over in the last four lessons. That's quite a bit of territory when you stop and think about it. So for the rest of this lesson and to close out this series, I want us to consider some things that can help us to understand how these gifts can reach their potential, how they can find their fulfillment in the kingdom of God, things that will help, things that will hinder. I want to read another short excerpt, if I can, from Brother Bernard's book on spiritual gifts because I think it, it, it fits in what we're looking at today. He writes these words, Humility, brokenness, and yieldingness are important in all aspects of Christian life But these attributes are particularly vital in allowing God's Spirit to work through us. We should be neither proud nor self-rejecting, but simply unconscious of self. We need a hunger for the things of God and a sincere love for the kingdom of God. We must repent of sin and pursue holiness, asking the Lord to reveal and remove secret impurities in our life. We should periodically evaluate and purge our motives. We should develop a habit of prayer and a continual attitude of prayer. Self-discipline and self-denial should become guiding principles of our life, and fasting is an important practice in this regard. 
We cannot earn favors from God through spiritual efforts, but these attitudes and disciplines will help minimize worldly influences and maximize godly influences. As we lay aside selfish desires and fleshly lusts, we will become more sensitive and open to the things of God. Now, those thoughts are written in that book primarily with the supernatural gifts in view, but I think they are beneficial in all areas of our walk with God and any of the gifts and callings that God may or may not impart in our lives. I want to read a well-known passage of Scripture as we move on. Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 28 to 31. It says, And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment and the second is like namely this thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself there is none other commandment greater than these so after listening to jesus answering questions and deciding that he had answered them well the scribe asked the question which is the first commandment of all two things i want to point out just quickly about that question firstly as a scribe he was an expert in the law of Moses or the commandments. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, there were hundreds of commandments, hundreds of them. Secondly, when the scribe asked which commandment was first, it was not a question of which commandment was written first or which was the first one on the list, but it was a question of which one is first in importance, which is the most important commandment. Now, in Matthew's record or Matthew's account of this conversation, Jesus said that on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What that means is that everything in God's instruction to his people flows from, depends upon, succeeds or fails with these two commandments. We must love the only true God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and we must love our neighbor as ourselves the fact that jesus in the new testament reached back to the old testament and imported those two commandments and underlined their importance mean that they are just as significant for the new testament church as they were for the old testament for the nation of israel so we could suggest i don't think it's inaccurate to say that in the new testament church context our walk with God also hangs upon those two commandments. That's what it depends upon. And the way that we fit into his body, the way that we operate in the gifts and callings that he has given us, also hangs upon these two commandments. Love for God, love for our brethren, love for our neighbor, is the only correct motivation for any gifts or callings to operate in our lives. And when we think about the groups of gifts that we've covered, in Romans chapter 12, after the Apostle Paul gave us the service or the motivational gifts, he also wrote in Romans 12, 9 and 10, Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. 
in honour, preferring one another. That word dissimulation simply means it can't be fake. In other words, our love has to be genuine. Our love for God, our love for our neighbour must be genuine. It can't be faked. Those verses are written at the end of the gifts that Paul mentions in Romans chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians, the instructions that we have about the supernatural gifts are found in chapters 12 and chapters 14. And many of you would know that sandwiched between those chapters is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. as a revelation that chapter 13 comes between 12 and 14. But we would understand that chapter 13 is often called the love chapter and is using the, the Greek word there is, is agape, which talks about a sacrificial love, which is very much about the preferences of others, particularly God, instead of us, and that without that love, whatever we do is just empty noise. And so there is a strong emphasis on love being involved in what's happening in the supernatural gifts of the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, where we are given the ministerial office gifts, we are told to speak the truth in love and to edify or to build up in love. And the last verse of Ephesians 4 says, And be you kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. So our motivation or the reason that we want to be used in whatever it is that God gives us to, gives us or whatever He calls us to, must still hang upon these two commandments. Love God, love people. It's interesting that in those, those three passages of Scripture that are usually recognized as the groupings of gifts and callings, that the consistent ingredients in the context has to do with the body, humility, love for one another, and love being the motive that we operate by. That's worth paying attention to. That's consistent in all three passages. Amen. Now, there are some personalities, and God's made us all different. Amen. Turn to somebody and say, you're smiling at me behind that mask. We are all different. Some of us are more people people than others. You hear somebody describe somebody say they're a people person. What that means is they love to be around people. They love to be in a gathering of social interaction. They don't necessarily like being alone. Some people get really weird when they're alone. They've got to be around other people. Then there are other people that quite enjoy solitude that you wouldn't describe as people people. But the commandment to love God and to love people is for all personality types. Whether you are a people person, whether you have people over for dinner six out of seven nights of the week, or your favorite thing to do is be home with nobody else, the commandment applies to you. So it doesn't mean that we all have to become, you know, super hospitable and host dinner parties every night of the week, but we do have to love people. That has to find an expression in our lives, whatever personality type we have and however God has made us. So our motives or the reason that we do things is crucial in how we use our gifts. Amen. I hope we've underlined that. If our motives are carnal, that word carnal means fleshly. If our motives come from our sinful, carnal, fleshly human nature, that is not compatible with the kingdom of God because everything is happening for the wrong reason. Now, I will put this note in here that I think some of you understand, but it's important. The supernatural gifts of the Spirit can be operated in even when you're in your flesh. You can be used in the miraculous and tongues and interpretations and healings and prophecy and all nine of those gifts even when you are in the flesh, even when you are carnal. 
because God gives a gift, the person who receives that gift can learn how to operate that gift and know when God is wanting to do something without necessarily walking close to God. If you look at the scripture, you can see very clearly that God can speak through a backslidden prophet, but it is in no way an indicator of their spirituality. Amen. It may be possible to operate in a carnal fashion, but it is dangerous. Let me say this very emphatically. It is dangerous to be involved in the supernatural when you walk in the flesh. It is dangerous because you are very susceptible to being deceived because you can feel the anointing come upon you for your function, for the gift that God has given you, and you see the power of God demonstrated, and there is a certain euphoria there is a certain buzz if you like that comes with that and you can be deceived into thinking god and i are good when you and god may be nothing close to good but he needs to do something and you just happen to be a vessel that happens to be there so as a general principle god can still use you but it doesn't matter if god uses you in all nine gifts of the spirit every day of the week before breakfast it does not indicate your spirituality or the health of your relationship with god The health of your walk with God is revealed in fruit, not in gifts. That's a whole other lesson, but they're in Galatians chapter 4. So we need to understand that. Amen. Pride, self-glory or self-exaltation, wanting to be in charge, wanting to be the person up the front with the microphone, wanting to fix everything that is wrong, wanting others to think that you are spiritual are all carnal motivations. And there's plenty of people that have those motivations. I'm not saying here, I don't think that's necessarily an issue, but I've been around long enough to see a lot of weird and wonderful motivations. And even if you have gifts that come from God or callings that have come directly from God, carnal motivations will lead to frustration, disappointment and unfulfillment because your heart and your spirit are not compatible with God's heart and spirit. It's important we understand that he will put those gifts in you. There may be a calling on your life, but that does not automatically mean it comes to pass. There are things that God requires of us. And you can, if you take the time to read the epistles of Paul to Timothy and also to Titus, there are lists there, particularly for people that are called to the ministry office gifts of requirements of their lifestyle and their character. He's not just saying, well, anybody who wants to can be an evangelist or be an apostle or be a pastor. It talks about bishops and elders, and I think we could say that includes all ministry officers, that there are requirements that God places upon their lives. Now, most of us that are involved in ministry, when we read those lists, the first thing we recognize is there's more work to be done. It's not written that you have to have those things perfect before you can operate in those callings, but it's saying that is the mark that God expects. That is what we are to hold ourselves to and continue to work towards. Amen. If we have sin in our lives, sin that we are aware of that is not repented of, that will cripple what God wants to do with us. He is merciful. He is patient. But if we do not repent, He will cut us off. Now, that's not popular in modern Christianity, but that's Bible. You read John chapter 15, the scriptures about how he is the vine and we are the branches. It talks about two different, and I preached a message some time back about the difference between being cut back and cut off. He prunes for growth. He cuts off to get rid of dead wood. 
He doesn't do that quickly, but he will. There is a point where it says that my father is the husbandman. He's the one who cuts the the dead wood off. Amen. So we need to be very cautious that we do not have sin that we've allowed to creep into our lives. Sin is not always the billboard sins. It's not always fornication, stealing, violence. Sin often germinates as an attitude and a spirit in our hearts. In fact, I would say it always germinates as an attitude or it begins with a hardening. It begins with a refusal to submit ourselves to the will of God and that begins to grow. That hardness begins to gain a hold on us and before long we end up having attitudes and then eventually behaviors that do not please and honor God. That's why we've got to search our hearts on a regular basis. Amen. There's a couple of other things I want to touch on this morning that can really hinder us from our gifts finding their fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And two of those are feelings of unworthiness and fear. I deliberately use the words feelings of unworthiness because it's our perspective that causes that, not God. It comes from our feelings. God does not think that way, but we do. And just as he's washed you clean and he's made you righteous in his sight, he makes you worthy to serve him. Grace and mercy is always in operation in our lives. And as long it, it's one of the things that is hard for our rational minds to comprehend, but when you read the Scripture and you talk, it talks about the power of His blood and how He can wash us whiter than snow, and Ephesians talks about how He will present His bride to Him spotless, and we go, but I'm in that bride. How can it be spotless? And Revelation talks about the bride prepared for the Lamb, and it is pure, it is white, it is holy, and yet all of us are in that. It doesn't seem to work, but God, the Bible says, He imputes or He puts His righteousness in our account. He makes us worthy to be used by Him, that He might receive the glory and the honor. Paul, The Apostle Paul wrote, and he said that he was the chief of all sinners. He said, I'm the worst sinner there's ever been. He said, but because of that, Jesus is using me as an example of what He can do in a person and through a person. So if you have feelings of unworthiness in the kingdom of God, you need to let the word of God speak to you. You need to take those feelings because that's what they are. You need to drag them before the word of God and interrogate them in the presence of God's word and say they are not true. They are false. God is true. Let God be true in every man a liar. Amen. Fear. Fear can be paralyzing. Sometimes we understand its cause. Other times it can be totally irrational and yet it's just as real. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, many of you could quote this verse. Paul wrote to the young pastor and said, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And if you have a problem with fear, you're sitting there thinking, well, that's easy to read. But Paul wrote those words to Timothy immediately after he told him to stir up the gift that was in him which was endorsed or confirmed by the laying on of hands of his elders. Now, if Paul wrote that to Timothy, I think it's safe to say that Timothy obviously had a struggle with fear that was impacting him operating in the gifts and callings that God had placed in his life. Paul said, stir that gift up. The elders believe in you. They confirmed the things that God has called you to. You don't have a spirit of fear. You have a spirit of power and of love, and of a sound mind. So if it can happen to Timothy, if you feel fear sometimes, be encouraged that you're not alone. 
But Paul, in his writing in that verse, also identified that fear does not come from the Spirit of God. It comes from our flesh, sometimes from the spiritual realm. The Apostle John identified, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, that fear is connected to love. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18, John wrote and said, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Now, when that verse says that if we have fear, we are not made perfect in love, it's not saying that we failed some exam or that we're no good. What it's telling us is that the reason we are tormented by fear is that our understanding of the love that God has for us is still incomplete. The reason that we have that fear is because we're still coming to terms with the fact that God loves us, that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us. Two verses earlier, in verse 16, John wrote this. In 1 John 4, 16, he said, And we have known and believed the love that God has to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. That word known there talks about both knowledge and experience. So he's saying we felt the love of God. We, we know that God is love. But the reason he says known and believed, the word believed is translated from the Greek word pistiou, which is connected to the same Greek word that we get the word faith from. That Greek word is a verb or an action word. And so what that means is that when we know and believe, there needs to be a persuasion in us of the unconditional love of God for his children that will cast out fear. Whatever it is that we are afraid of, God loves us. He'll take care of us. Whatever it is that torments us, God loves us. He won't cast us aside if we fail. So often fear is connected to failing. God will never, ever cast us aside. And we have to ask him to help us become complete in his love. Now, that sometimes can happen in a moment of deliverance. That sometimes is a process over time as we walk with God. But God wants to complete his love in us and cast out fear from us. And we need to be encouraged in that. Amen. We have to have that persuasion of the unconditional love of God for us. And this actually connects us back to the first and second commandments. We have to love God, that vertical relationship. You've heard me teach it before. With all of our hearts and love our neighbors as self. We have to know and believe that love before we can effectively demonstrate that love. Amen. God help us this morning to know and believe the love that God has for us, that he might cast all fear out of us. Amen. We will not be afraid as we sang this morning. Let's talk about some positive things that give our gifts the best opportunity to be fulfilled. Faithfulness. Faithfulness cannot be understated in its importance and value in the kingdom of God. Showing up week in, week out. Walking with God through thick and thin, over mountains, through valleys, whatever crosses our path. Faithfulness is so, so valuable in the sight of God. And when the gifts that God has placed in you or the callings in your life are needed, you're there. Your gift's no good if you're not there. You can't 
fill that role, step into that gap, serve that function if you're absent. It's not possible. Nobody, you know, when, if we are faithful, we'll be there. You know, you know, faithful people are the people that we don't worry. Are you going to be at church this week? I'm not saying you never miss church. We all miss for reasons, and as long as they're legitimate, that's okay. But there are, there are people that I never, ever wonder, will they be in the house of God Sunday morning? I know, like clockwork, they're there. And that faithfulness is incredibly valuable in the sight of God. You think about essential services. Can you imagine what it would be like if you needed an ambulance? And you rang up, oh, they didn't show up for work today. Sorry, click. You know, you, you burst a pipe in your bathroom and there's six inches of water through your house and you ring the plumber and he, he's on holidays. I mean, he's allowed to have a holiday. That's probably not a good example. You know, that's a bit unkind. But, but if there was no consistent availability, how let down you would be. Amen. Faithfulness is a key foundation of any healthy relationship. You're in a healthy marriage, there's a good chance the person you're married to is faithful. They're there all the time. Availability. Faithfulness is point one. Availability is point two. There are, a lot of, there are sometimes faithful people that aren't necessarily available. Willingness to sacrifice. Willingness to be inconvenienced. To give of our time, our treasure, and our talent. There's only one kingdom worth building, and it's not yours. It's his. It's the only one worth building. This is something my pastor used to drum into us as young men that he was training for ministry. Having a servant's heart. Having the heart of a servant. This comes back to motive and humility. You just want to serve God. You want to honor God. You want to worship God. Whether it's seen or acknowledged or it isn't, you just want to make a difference. That's the heart of a servant. So going back to our original verse, we started with Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. It says, But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. This verse tells us that we shall receive power. That means in the kingdom of God, all power and authority is received. It's given from a source. In his humanity, even Jesus spoke about that. In the end of Matthew, he said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Even in his humanity, he spoke about receiving power from a source. So it's important that we understand that none of us are the source of our own power or authority in the kingdom of God. That's why we do all things in Jesus' name, not in our own. That's why the Bible says do everything in Jesus' name, not in our own. Now, the Greek word for power that's translated in Acts 1 and 8, which some of you already know, is dunamis, which includes in its meaning the power as it resides in us, but also the expression, the actions that this power produces. In fact, when you, if you go home and, and search that word out, you'll find that dunamis is often translated in the New Testament as mighty works, actions that took place. And as an interesting side thought, when Jesus healed the woman with the issue of blood, if you know the story, he's moving 
through a particular place and there's a crowd that's huge and everybody's jostling and bumping and, and pressing against him. Everyone, everybody wants to get close. They, they want to hear him. They want him to touch them. They want him to minister to them. And this woman with the issue of blood gets down on her hands and knees and she crawls through the crowd with the faith that she said in her heart, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And we know that when she reached him and she touched the hem of his garment, that she was healed. And Jesus stopped in the middle of that throng of people. It was no doubt noisy. It was probably smelly. It was everybody's bumping into each other. And he said, who touched me? And the disciples looked at him like he'd lost his mind. It's like we're surrounded by all these people. It's like this giant traffic jam. And you said, who touched you? But the scripture says that Jesus felt virtue go out from him. That word virtue is translated from dunamis. So Jesus felt the power that was in him in action. He felt it go out from him. And so that helps us to understand a little bit of what that word can mean in our lives. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this this morning, but power and authority and faith are all connected in the kingdom of God. They are inseparable if we're going to be successful in God's sight. Matthew chapter 8, and you'll know this passage well. Matthew 8, starting at verse 5. It says, And when Jesus was entering into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, a Roman soldier, not a Jew, a Gentile, a pagan, beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy. He had a form of paralysis, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily or truly I say unto you that I have not found so great faith, not in Israel. If you read on a couple of verses after that, Jesus talks about how the children of Abraham will be left out. People will come from the east and the west and will sit down because they don't understand basically what this man understood. This man understood that all authority and power, which also means your gifts, my gifts, your callings, my calling, must be in submission to and accountable to the source of that power. Ultimately, that's Jesus. Bible says he is the head of all principality and power. But as he gives power, as he delegates power, authority, and gifts and callings, he places them under authority in his kingdom. Now, you might say, well, you know, I don't like being under authority. If that's how you feel, that's okay. That's honest, but that's also carnal. You can very easily establish that in the New Testament church, there was accountability. There were elders over ministers. There were elders over people that they were accountable to. The Apostle Paul is, is my favorite example because it's easy to demonstrate that even though he had such incredible experiences with God, he made himself accountable to the elders at Jerusalem. He went to the elders. He wanted to make sure he wasn't going off course. He made himself accountable to them. The people that were under his leadership, Timothy and Titus, the two very easy examples, were accountable to Paul. Paul wrote to them and he said, while you're leading in the church where you are, he said, 
I want you to appoint leaders in those congregations in different places. So very easily you see four different levels or steps of accountability. Nobody in the New Testament that was blessed of God, that survived in the kingdom of God, was a lone ranger. Everybody had to be connected to the body no matter how powerful their ministry was. And when you read about people that didn't want to be accountable, like Diotrephes, who loved the preeminence, wanted to be the man, you find that that was not blessed or honored of God. Amen. In a local church, which is where most of us will or will not operate our gifts and callings, God places that authority in the pastor, in the shepherd of the congregation. So for the gifts and callings to operate as God intends, they do so under the authority that God places in the shepherd. Now, you may not like that, but that's, that's the Lord's way. That's scriptural. It's also something I've seen succeed and be the only way that God honors and blesses for decades. It simply doesn't work any other way. It's amazing when you do things God's way, they work. When you don't, they fail. And so the relationship, the attitude, the submission of an individual to God-ordained authority in their life is inseparable from either their fulfillment or their frustration going to end up in one of two places but when we work within the direction the oversight the shepherding of the pastor that god has given us with the right spirit we enjoy the blessings power and authority of god in our lives and on our gifts and our callings god will bless the things he puts in us when we struggle against those things and we want to do it our way you will only find frustration and disappointment this principle flows throughout scripture from old testament through the new testament and to the present day three examples that i use i like to use from the old testament king saul had a prophet in his life samuel when samuel tried to give him correction and direction saul was not willing to repent but he tried to self-justify we know that part of that had to do with saul being removed from the throne david who took his place had the prophet Samuel for one part of his life, and then he had the prophet Nathan at another part of his life. He messed up. You know the life of David. He fell into horrendous sin. He fell into immorality, adultery, and then tried to cover that by murder. And, and just how somebody that was so godly could slip so quick is a warning for all of us. But when the prophet came to him and said and revealed his sin, David repented. Without Nathan's voice in David's life, I wonder how David's life would have gone. I promise you, Nathan went into the throne room before the king in fear and trembling. And God gave him that message to deliver to a man that had the authority to take his life. He wouldn't have been walking in with any swagger. He was probably stuttering and he'd never stuttered before in his life. He would have been terrified. But God spoke through him and David was willing to listen. The terrible thing about King Solomon's life is that you will not find any record of a prophet ever speaking to Solomon. Solomon, the Bible tells us, was the wisest man that ever lived. God gave him incredible wisdom, but Solomon made decisions out of natural wisdom, married for political reasons. And the Bible says that as he became an old man, that his wives turned his heart away from God. And God was angry with him. But the only prophet you may have, you may be more not, you may be able to find something I couldn't find. But 
The only prophet that I can find during Solomon's reign was the prophet that God used to speak about the downfall of his reign. The man of God that went to Jeroboam. Amen. Everybody needs a pastor. Now, I do not believe in the infallibility of pastors or popes for that matter. I do not believe in the infallibility of any man or woman. I believe that everybody has the right to choose where they go to church. I think you pick your church, if you're wise, you pick your church as a place that teaches biblical truth. But everybody has the right to choose where they go to church. Everybody has the right to choose who their pastor will be. There is no pastor on the face of this earth that is everybody's flavor. We're all different. And so there are times that it will be a better outcome for somebody to serve under another pastor. I would always say the reason we move is very, very important. If God's in it, he'll bless it. And I I don't think that to leave a church is always the wrong thing to do. I will say that in my experience, more often than not, people leave churches and go somewhere else because of something that's going on in their own heart. But not always. Sometimes it is the right thing to do and we do it the right way. And that's important. And that's simply the facts of life is that one person is not necessarily able to meet every person's needs in the kingdom of God. God uses different churches, different pastors, different congregations differently. I have no problem with that. But as we grow in our walk with God, we have to understand that there is a difference between somebody being the pastor and somebody being my pastor. I've had people come to me that have been in the church for 15 minutes and, and say, I want you to be my pastor. I want you to be the spiritual authority of my life and, and, and all this passionate stuff. You know, sadly, when I hear that level of enthusiasm, I almost instantly know they're not going to be here long. And it happens because they're not decisions you make in 15 minutes. They're not decisions you make in the church after a couple of weeks. I think there has to be a period of time in our lives where we process where we're at with God and how we relate to those people that God puts in our lives. Some people, the person who is the pastor of the church they attend will only ever be the pastor. He's the person that looks after things, that prays for their kids, that, that you know, looks after the services, that writes the rosters, that does all that stuff. But they will never get to the point where they become my pastor. And I would encourage you, don't make that decision lightly. Because when you make a decision that somebody is your pastor, that comes with obligations in the sight of God. Now, as long as they're the pastor, that's a certain level. But when you decide that in the sight of God, that person is my pastor, then God holds you accountable to your relationship and your attitude towards that person, whether it's me, Brother Paulus, Brother Downs, any pastor across this country and across this world. When you say that person is put there by God in my life, that comes with a whole lot of terms and conditions that some of us click I accept before we read them all. So be careful with that. But if you have gifts in your life, and you do, I want to remind you, every one of you here this morning, God has put gifts in you. He's put gifts of the Spirit in you if you have the Holy Ghost. He has motivational gifts, the ones that are Romans that are in you. Some of you He is calling and has called to ministerial office gifts. But how we respond to that determines whether those gifts 
ever find fulfillment, whether those gifts ever do what God wants them to do for His glory, for His honor, for the growth of His body and His people and the strengthening of His kingdom and His church. We have control over whether or not they stay in the box wrapped in plastic for the rest of our lives or we unwrap the gift and say, God, whatever it takes for your glory, I want to serve you, Lord. I want to honor you, Lord. I want to worship you. I want to be under your authority. I want to be directed by your word. I want to have humility. I want to have a servant's heart. It's up to us to fulfill that. Well, I don't like the way this is done. That's not up to you. I don't like the way that's done. Trust God. I think it should be like this, and I think it should be like that, and until it is, I'm not going to. Well, that's your decision, but you will only ever experience frustration and disappointment. And I know, I've said this before, I know it's easy for me to stand up here as the pastor and say those things, but I promise you, I have seen this. I have traveled and preached in churches across this land and in other continents, and the principles are the same, whatever language, whatever country, whatever culture you go to. You will find people that have a servant's heart, that just want to please God, that want to be under His covering, under His authority, and God blesses them and they flourish. And you find others that want it this way and just keep bashing their head against that wall and they cause frustration and disappointment in themselves and in the body of Christ. I've seen it in every country I've been to because they are the biblical principles. And we do it God's way or it just doesn't work. I want you to stand with me this morning, if you would. You feel like God is speaking to you this morning about your involvement in the kingdom of God. And you want some help with that. I want you to talk to me. Not just saying necessarily in part. I can't speak to everybody after one service. Make an appointment with me. Let's get a coffee. Let's talk. Let's discuss what you feel like God is doing in your heart. But recognize that there is one way that this works, and that's His way. Amen. God wants to use you. I want you to say it out loud. God wants to use me. Now, let's say it so we don't sound like a class full of year four primary school kids. Let's say it like we believe it. God wants to use me. You are not a spare part. You're not something that he put together and thought, well, i got some leftovers. I don't know what I'm going to do with these bits. Every bit has a purpose and a plan. But you control what happens to that. You control what happens to that. And, you know, if you say, well, I've never been asked to this. Have you volunteered for anything? Have you said, is there anything I can do? Are you brave enough to say, what is it that might be holding me back? Are you willing to have an honest conversation? Because God will challenge you. You see, the rich young ruler came to Jesus. I'm not wanting to keep you standing long, but he was a good man. He was a good man. He had a good record. His resume was polished. He was educated. He ticked all the boxes. He kept all the rules. But he went to Jesus and he said, what do I lack? What is not in my life that needs to be for me to be what I should be is basically what he was saying. If you're going to ask Jesus that question, you better be ready to hear the answer. Because when Jesus looked into his heart and saw that his riches had a vice grip on his heart, and he said to him, you need to sell what you've got, give it to the poor and come follow me. He didn't say that to everybody. 
Here's the thing. When you ask God that question, your answer is custom designed for you. What he says to Moses, he won't say to Brother Grant. What he says to my wife, he won't say to Sister Natalie. When you say, Jesus, what do I lack? He's not giving you a standard answer. He's saying you, your DNA, your fingerprints, your personality, your gifts, your callings. You need this to become that. But the rich young ruler was not willing to surrender to what God had won. He went away sorrowful. And we don't read the rest of his life. I'd love to believe that maybe he thought about it the next day and sorted things out. I don't know what happened. But he came to a point, and too many times as believers, God brings us to a point, shows us what we need to change. The next dot on the map, if I can go back to that example, and we are reluctant to move. And we are stuck. But then we say, well, you know, I'm, I've never been asked for this. I've never been asked for that. Ask God first, what do I lack? And let God speak to us. I want us to just lift our hands, close our eyes and lift our hands for a moment, if we would, this morning.